Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. So it's about 200 degrees in the recording studio today. We're having a bit of a heat wave in northern Pennsylvania, but I am not complaining. I love summer so much. I love the heat. I love the sunshine. And I love everything about this season. However, I did wake up with a bit of a scratchy throat this morning. So if I sound weird, that's why. I hope it's just some kind of a seasonal allergy. I don't need to be getting sick at the best time of the year right now. I have been nerding out quite a bit on the KSOM mini farm lately. So I've taken up bird watching. Mm, big dork. But it's really fun. I love it. I just love animals and wildlife so much. And back in April during quarantine, I started a little mealworm farm, like raising and growing mealworms so I could feed to my chickens because to buy mealworms is ridiculously expensive. And they're my chicken's favorite treats. So I started this little mealworm farm a couple months ago and it's finally taken off and I am getting so many mealworms in the different phases of their life. And that is super interesting to me. The colony has grown so much that I had to actually expand it into three colonies. So that's really exciting too. But I'm not going to bore you with stories of birds and insects. The story I have for you today is much more interesting. We're going serial killer bitches. So get ready. And on that note, a little content warning for today. We are going to be discussing gruesome deaths and horrific treatment of corpses. This story also has aspects of mental illness as well as intellectual disabilities. And there's also a little bit of race relation issues in here. I always just like to warn you guys when there are touchy subjects or talk of things that may trigger an emotional response, just so you're aware and can make an informed decision about listening further. But before we get into any of that, how about some shout outs? First shout out goes to brand new Keystoner, Nicole. And although she's new to Keystone State of Mind, she's actually a really old friend of mine. I mean, not old, but she's been my friend for a long time. So welcome to the crew, Nicole. So glad to have you. So glad you're listening. I also want to say hey to Chris, who recently became a member of the KSOM Keystoners Facebook group and also enjoys Keystone Light. Cheers to you, Chris. And last but not least, big shout out to a person with the username I see you peeking, who left me a five star rating and a really awesome review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much. I don't know your real name, but thank you, I see you peeking. Keep those ratings and reviews coming. They make such a difference to the growth of the show. Also, if you want a shout out 
Or if you have anything you want to tell me about the show or about anything, really, you can email me at Steph at KSOMthepod.com. That's S-T-E-P-H at KSOMthepod.com. Now, of course, there's just one thing left to do before we get into today's gruesome story. Let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light, and this beer is dedicated to my good friend Dutch, who lost a bet and had to buy me a 30-pack. On Sunday, August 9th, 1987, police were called to an apartment in a rundown row house in North Philadelphia. The Philadelphia police were responding to a call of a possible dead body found in this apartment. Earlier that day, landlord and property owner Nathaniel Choice had evicted longtime resident Harrison Graham because the neighbors had been long complaining of the stench coming from the apartment. Harrison Graham left the apartment willingly around noon after he was informed of the eviction, but he nailed shut the door to one of the bedrooms. A few hours later, Nathaniel Choice sent his son into the apartment to make sure that Harrison Graham had left and gotten his stuff out. What they found was every room just mounded with trash. And that one door that Graham had nailed shut before he left. Choice's son looked through the keyhole into that bedroom and saw a pair of woman's legs. And this is when he called police. The police arrived on the scene at about 3.45. They pried the door open to that bedroom and found that the kid was right. Those were a pair of women's legs. And the woman that they belonged to was dead. And so began a painstaking search of the filthy apartment and a 10-day manhunt for Harrison Graham. Before I tell you what else was found in the apartment and the events that came after, let's first talk about what little is known about Harrison Graham and his early life. Harrison Frank Graham Jr. was born in Philadelphia on either October 9th, 1958 or September 9th, 1959. I've seen both birthdays reported for him. And this is what I mean when I say how little is known about Harrison Graham. We don't even know exactly what day he was born. His mother's name was Lillian Graham Jeter, and his father was obviously Harrison Frank Graham Sr. And he was the oldest of five children, although I was not able to find any of their names or anything about them at all. 
At some point in his life, Harrison Graham began going by the nickname Marty. I'm not sure how he got that nickname, but that's what everybody called him, at least in his adulthood. I'm going to continue to refer to him as Harrison, but when we get into quotes of his friends and neighbors later, if you hear the name Marty, that's why. From age two to age seven, Harrison lived in foster care. And there is no reporting that I could find that said why he lived in foster care. I don't know if his parents remained married or, you know, if the dad left at some point and the mom couldn't take care of him, if he was showing some kinds of behavioral problems, or if Lillian Graham Jeter had issues of her own. Either way, he was in foster care from age two to age seven. At age 12, Harrison was diagnosed with a mental illness and he was hospitalized for two years. I have no idea what this mental illness was. I don't know what his diagnosis was. And when I say hospitalized, I'm assuming it was in a mental health facility, but I don't know that for sure. And if we know anything about mental health facilities in the early 70s, it probably was not the greatest of care. Harrison was able to return home to his mother at age 14. I know that he did drop out of high school, but I can't say when. He may have never gone to school after that hospitalization. Harrison spent his early adulthood in the same neighborhood where he grew up. Somewhere along the line, he got into drugs. Sometime in the early 80s, his mother asked him to leave her home because she just couldn't handle his drug use. And I'm sure that coupled with his mental illness was really just too much for his mother to handle. I'm going to make an educated guess that he moved out of his mother's home sometime in 1983. Because when he was evicted in 1987, the landlord said he had lived there for four years. This was a low-rent apartment, even for the mid-80s. He only paid $90 a month in rent. He also received $300 a month in Social Security. But he supplemented his income by selling drugs, probably to support his own habit. The drug of choice around the neighborhood was R and T. That's the letter R and the letter T. I had never heard of that before. And what that is, is Ritalin and Talwin. Ritalin is a stimulant drug used to treat ADHD in children. And Talwin is a painkiller. This concoction was, at least by Harrison Graham and his associates, most often injected. Harrison referred to his apartment as the shooting gallery, so other drug users were welcome to stop by and shoot up there with him. 
Harrison was well-known around the neighborhood, and everybody thought of him as, you know, kind of a whack, but pretty nice, harmless. He did handyman work for people around the neighborhood, and he was known to play basketball with the kids. But here's one really weird thing he was known for. He always carried around a Cookie Monster doll like the Muppet from Sesame Street. And he not only carried it around all the time, but he talked to it and made it talk back to him like a puppet. The neighborhood children thought this was funny. You know, the kids liked it when he would do his Cookie Monster impression that supposedly was spot on. So a lot of people around the neighborhood actually called him Cookie Monster. Okay, so now we're up to speed on Harrison Marty Graham and the best we can tell of what his life was like. Now we can get into what was found in the apartment when the police searched. Philadelphia police officer Pete Scalatino was the first man on the scene. He could smell the odor of death before he even started up the stairs to the third floor apartment. Throughout the entire apartment was waist high garbage. There were crude drawings of naked women on the walls, as well as expletives scrawled into the walls. And the word Marty was scrawled into the door that was nailed shut. One of the first signs of foul play that Officer Scalatino saw was stripes of blood on the wall, as if someone had dipped two fingers into a puddle of blood and ran their fingers parallel across the wall. There was also old, rotten, moldy feces on the floor that may have been from a dog or multiple dogs. And there were jars of unidentified yellow liquid throughout the place. So let's just think about this for a minute. Harrison was known to have guests over. He called it the shooting gallery for fellow drug users to come over and hang out. I don't know how deep into drugs I would have to be to hang out in a place like this, minus the dead bodies that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. The stench was horrific. There's dog shit all over the floor and waist-high garbage, as well as dirty needles all over the place and possibly jars of piss. Like, you got to be super fucking high. To not notice this, I guess. I wouldn't really know. I don't do drugs. But what the actual fuck? And Harrison was known to have numerous girlfriends. How are these women being like, oh, yeah, this is totally cool. Let's go to your place. What? It's horrendous. And poor Officer Scalatino. How traumatizing that must have been before he even got into the dead body shit. Okay, so anyways, 
Officer Skeletino gets through the majority of the house and gets to the room that the door is nailed shut. At this point, he's called the medical examiner because he knows that there's going to be a dead body. So an investigator from the medical examiner's office also came to help in the search. His name was Charles Johnson. So Officer Skeletino and Investigator Johnson pried the door open to that room. And that's when they found the first body. This body was just laying on a mattress in the middle of the bedroom. The victim was nude and it was obvious that she'd been dead for a while because she was bloated and discolored. And I want to point out that this is the only mattress they found in the house. So this is the only place that Harrison Graham could have slept. Next to a dead, bloated, rotting corpse. There was another female body in plain view, laying on the floor next to the mattress. This victim was clothed and seemed to have been dead for around the same amount of time as the victim that laid on the mattress. At this point in the investigation, the police were unable to say if Harrison Graham had murdered these women because drug overdoses were common. Maybe these women had been using drugs in Harrison's apartment and they died of an overdose, and Graham just never reported it. But at the very least, they were able to immediately issue a warrant for multiple counts of abuse of a corpse. So now with the discovery of these two dead women, Officers Galatino called in backup, obviously, as well as the forensic team. They came in donned in hazmat suits to go through the trash and filth in this house to find evidence, more bodies, whatever they could uncover in this complete shithole. Oh, and let me tell you, the forensic team found some shit. First, they found two more bodies wrapped up in sheets and piled with trash on top of them. And these two were nearly skeletonized. So it was obvious they'd been dead for a lot longer. They also found a body scrunched up in a very small, shallow closet. The last victim that they found in the apartment was actually shoved between the two mattresses that Harrison Graham slept on. So if you're keeping track, that's six bodies in the apartment. The first two victims that the police found were easily identified as female, but the other four had been dead for so long and were basically just bones that they couldn't even tell whether they were male or female. So after the discovery of the six bodies, 
it was obvious to police that these were not just overdoses or homeless people hiding out that passed away. Harrison Graham's charges were now upgraded to murder, and his face was plastered all over the news and all over the newspapers. Police spoke with the neighbors, and one of them said, Yeah, you guys better check the backyard, because I've seen Marty out there digging on numerous occasions. So an excavation team was brought in to dig up the backyard to look for remains. And they did find bones, but they turned out to be dog bones from numerous dogs. So apparently Harrison Graham had pet dogs that shit all over his floor and then died and he buried them in the backyard. I wouldn't even keep a dog in that apartment. It's not even a place for animals. One of Harrison's drug buddies came forward and said, actually, yeah, Marty's had a dead body out on the roof for like a long ass time. You should check that out too. And so Marty's apartment was on the third floor. So his bedroom window went out onto the roof of like a second floor balcony or something. And he had a dead body out there. So this is the seventh set of remains that was found. But this was not a complete set of remains. It was only the leg bones. So now they're looking for the rest of this body. Where could it be? They've already searched the yard. It's not there. And those leg bones did not belong to any of the other remains that were found inside the apartment. Once the forensic team was done and the investigation of the apartment was complete, the building was condemned for many code violations. A big one was that there was no electricity in this building. Windows were broken out and boarded up. There was no front door. Nathaniel Choice, the landlord, I would like to say that he was charged with something but I have no evidence of that. And now the hunt was on for Harrison Graham. Police found out through his acquaintances and his mother, the places that he hung out and patrols were set up in those areas. Because Harrison's face, his picture, his name was plastered all over the news Lots of tips came in of sightings of where Harrison had been. But every time the police would respond, they had just missed him. Like at a soup kitchen or a convenience store. Those kind of places. Finally, on August 19th, so 10 days after the discovery of the bodies, Harrison called his mother and asked her to bring him some food. She urged Harrison to turn himself in. She urged him to stay where he was. She was going to come meet him and she was going to let the police know. He did what his mother asked and he was apprehended without incident. At the same time that police were hunting for Harrison Graham, 
the medical examiner's office was doing their best to identify the victims. But this was very difficult, especially for the five victims that were so badly decomposed and were mainly just bones. The two victims that had died most recently were easily determined to be killed by strangulation based on the marks on their neck. One of the skeletonized set of remains was also found to be killed by strangulation because of a broken hyoid bone. And the hyoid bone is in your neck and it really can only be broken by the act of strangulation. So that's a telltale sign. That was the cause of death. A forensic anthropologist was brought in to examine the bones and determined that all of these victims were black females in their 20s to 30s, but that's all they could say. Several people from the community did come forward to say that their loved ones had been missing for a long period of time and had been known to be acquaintances of Harrison Graham's. So that gave investigators a place to start to try to identify the remains. After his arrest, Harrison Graham was interrogated extensively. He first told police that the bodies were already in his apartment when he moved in. Back in 1983. Okay, cool story, bro. Not buying it. He eventually did confess, but he really couldn't shed a whole lot of light on what actually happened. Harrison's story was that he would be doing drugs with these women. They would engage in consensual sex. And he would strangle them as a form of rough sex. And he said that every time he was surprised when he would wake up next to a dead body. Harrison said he never meant to kill them, but strangulation, strangling these women, was how he got sexual release And he was just a big, strong guy. He also was no help in identifying his victims because he said he didn't even know their names. Between Harrison's testimony, the forensic investigation, and witness statements, the police were able to piece together what happened but they really had no timeline. They couldn't say when these women died. They couldn't even really say in what order they died. Oh, but I got to hop back to Harrison's interrogation for a minute because he did confess to where the rest of the remains were of the woman whose leg bones were found on the roof. So here's how that story went. The woman on the roof 
was Harrison's first victim. He claimed not to know her name, but that he had strangled her to death during consensual sex and then was surprised in the morning when he woke up to find a dead body. That was basically his story through all of this. He didn't know what to do with her body, so he just threw her out the window onto that second-story balcony roof. Shortly thereafter, Harrison started dating a woman named Mary Hogan. And once during an argument, he told Mary, don't fuck with me because I'll kill you just like I killed that other lady. And of course, Mary's like, yeah, 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 whatever. And he says, no, really, you want to see her body? And he took Mary out and showed her his victim's body out on the roof. Well, Mary said, I'm not coming around here unless you get rid of this body. So Harrison disarticulated the remains, and I don't know how decomposed they were at this time. It may have just been a skeleton, but either way, he disarticulated the body, but he got lazy in the middle of it, and he only moved everything but the leg bones and the feet. He took the rest of her remains to a different building that his landlord owned, that he had access to the basement, and he put the rest of her remains in that basement in a garbage bag and buried it like just under a couple of inches of dirt. He didn't put a whole lot of thought and effort into it at all. And that's how that witness from earlier Harrison's drug acquaintance was able to tell police that there had been a body on the roof because Harrison showed him that body too. And it had been there for a long time. Like no one knows exactly for sure, but at least a year. And none of these people were like, "Mm, maybe I ought to inform the police that this Yahoo's killing women up in here. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little about the victims. And when I say a little, I mean that literally. Because there is hardly any information out there to find about them. Harrison's first victim, the woman on the roof, was named Robin DeShazer. She was 29. After that, I have no idea which victim was found where. So I can't say the woman in the closet was so-and-so because I don't know. All I was able to find was a list of their names and ages. There was Cynthia Brooks. She was 27. Valerie Jameson, 25. Mary Jeter Mathis, 36. Barbara Mahoney, 22, Sandra Garvin, 33, and Patricia Franklin, 24. Out of all of these women, the only one that I know anything about is Mary Jeter Mathis. She was 36 years old. She was married and had five children. Her body was identified by her husband based on the clothes that she was wearing. I know Robin DeShazer was identified by dental records. 
Sandra Garvin's friend identified her body. And that's all I know about these women. I like to put emphasis on the victims' lives when I talk about things like this. But in this case, I just can't. The information is not there for me to find. And I am so saddened by that. There's one thing that puzzles me about this. And that is the name of one of his victims, Mary Jeter Mathis. Jeter is the same surname of Harrison's mother, Lillian Graham Jeter. Maybe they were related. I never saw any reports of that. I never read anything that addressed this commonality. I wanted to mention it because it's something that puzzled me. But sadly, I had no answer for it. But I was really confused by why no one else in any of these articles mentioned that similarity in the name. Just an interesting side note, I guess, with no answer. Sorry about that. So now I'm going to talk briefly about the trial. Harrison Graham was represented by a public defender who obviously tried to use a mental defect defense. Harrison was evaluated by numerous psychologists from both sides, and he was found to have a mental illness, schizophrenia with possible dissociative identity disorder, which back in the 80s was called multiple personality disorder. So his lawyer tried to use that as a defense, that one of his alternate personalities was the one that committed the murders, but the judge did not allow that defense. A couple of Harrison's ex-girlfriends testified for the prosecution, saying that Harrison was violent during sex and was often scary. There was multiple occasions where these women thought that he was going to strangle them to death. That one ex-girlfriend, Mary Hogan, that I mentioned earlier, also testified in court about Harrison's obsession with this Cookie Monster doll. He slept with it every night. He talked to it every day. He would have conversations with this Cookie Monster doll playing himself and Cookie Monster in the voice. And she was very disturbed by it. And she said when she spent the night, that doll sat in the corner by itself. It was not allowed to share their bed. During the trial, Harrison continuously portrayed that he didn't understand what was going on. The prosecution and their expert witnesses, psychologists and psychiatrists, contended that that was an act that Harrison was putting on. And of course, the defense contended that it was not an act, that he really didn't know what was going on, and that he did not have the capability to assist in his own defense. 
So that was a huge point of contention throughout the entire trial. One important thing to mention was that Harrison's defense opted for a bench trial, so a judge-only trial, no jury to hear the facts of the case. His entire future was in the hands of one person rather than 12 jurors of his peers. Another part of the trial that wasn't quite as important but was slightly entertaining to me was that the entire time Harrison had stuffed animals and figure puppets with him. Am I a dick? I don't know. I thought that was funny. I, of course, do not make fun of intellectually challenged people or people with mental illnesses, but he did kill seven women. So let's just give me a pass on that one. At the conclusion of the trial, the judge gave his ruling. He found Harrison Graham guilty on seven charges of first-degree murder and seven charges of abuse of a corpse. Harrison was sentenced to six death sentences, one life sentence, and then a bunch of years for the abuse of the corpse charges. But the judge made a very controversial and first-of-its-kind type of sentence. He said that Harrison's death sentences were not to be carried out until he completed his whole-of-life sentence. So basically, that meant life in prison, without parole, but not to be put to death. This was unprecedented. If he didn't want Harrison to be put to death, why didn't he just sentence him to seven life sentences? Well, I think it had something to do with the fact that these first-degree murder charges with extenuating circumstances of the previous murders was grounds for the death penalty, and that's how the judge had to rule. But the judge didn't feel that Harrison should be put to death because of his mental illness and intellectual disabilities. So the judge kind of skirted the law and like backdoored a life without parole sentence in a case that he was legally obligated to impose the death penalty on. Well, this was all well and good until 2004, when a legal review of Harrison's case revealed this kind of illegal sentence that he had been given. And promptly, Harrison was then sentenced to death. He was gonna get lethal injection. But then a couple years later, a new bill was passed federally that people with intellectual disabilities could not be put to death. So once again, Harrison was spared from the death penalty, and now he is in prison for life with no chance of parole. He currently resides at the Cole Township State Correctional Institute in Pennsylvania. Since being incarcerated, Harrison Graham 
has become a reborn Christian and is now an ordained minister. Now we're not quite done because I did promise race relation issues in this episode. So who remembers way back to episode five of KSOM, Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors. Creepo Heidnick was keeping women captive at the same time that Harrison Graham was murdering women in his apartment. Do you remember how much information I had about Gary Heidnick and about his victims? That research was so easy for me. There was so much out there for me to lean on to do that episode. This episode, there was almost nothing. I found two really comprehensive articles for this case, and they were almost identical. I don't know which one plagiarized the other, and I'm not going to call them out, but honestly, that was it. The only news articles I found about Harrison Graham's serial killing were of his sentencing. Now, there was a lot of coverage of Harrison Graham's face when they were trying to catch him. But beyond that, there was nothing. There were no articles about the missing women. There were no in-depth interviews done with Harrison Graham or his family. So little was published about Harrison Graham and his victims. I almost scrapped this episode because... I couldn't find anything. And I hate to rely on one source. I, I hate to do it because if, the, if they're wrong, then I'm wrong. But I kind of didn't have a choice. There were, like I said, two articles, but they were almost exactly the same. So I don't even know where they got their information. Heidnick's victim pool and Harrison Graham's victim pool were the same. Women of Color with Substance Abuse Issues. Heidnick lived less than three miles from Graham's apartment. So they're in relatively close proximity in the city of Philadelphia. They were acting serial killers at the same time. And there was so much news coverage of Gary Heidnick and his crimes and almost none of Harrison Graham and his crimes. The only article that I found that came out before Graham's trial about his crimes was in the Weekly World News. This was a publication in the 80s and 90s that talked about alien abductions and mutant children and completely nonsense bullshit. I don't even know if they're still around, but I remember looking at it when I was a kid, like laughing. Me and my friends would read the articles and giggle because they were that dumb. We were teenagers and still were like, mm, okay. An article about Harrison Graham was in the Weekly World News on the same page of that article 
was a mention of a robot musician who had learned how to play the clarinet. I'm not even kidding. The only difference, one serial killer was white, one was black. I will leave you to make your own determination on why the press focused on one more than the other. So I just have one final thought on today's story. A lot of people have called Harrison Graham the house of death killer or the corpse collector. People believe that he was deliberately trying to create a mausoleum for his victims. I disagree. I think that he was lazy as fuck. He didn't want to clean his apartment, and he considered his victims as trash. He left trash and feces all over his house, and he didn't think anything different about the women that he killed. I refuse to give him a cutesy serial killer nickname, like the corpse collector. No, he didn't collect anything. He was just a scumbag that didn't clean his apartment. He had enough respect to bury his dead dogs, but he didn't have that much respect for the women that he murdered. So I'm going to name this episode Harrison Graham the Cookie Monster because he is cartoonishly disgusting. It would have been more fitting if he had loved Oscar the Grouch, honestly. His intellectual disabilities and mental illness do not give him a pass. He knew enough to keep his victims hidden. And I don't believe that he was oblivious to the court proceedings. His defense attorney said that Harrison could not read or write. But he could sure scrawl swear words all over his apartment walls, right? He knew how to spell fuck. I'm not buying it. I have no sympathy and rot in prison, you gross scumbag. Oh, and just one more thing. After his sentencing, the only thing that Harrison asked for was his cookie monster doll back. And the judge said, um, no, you're not having it. This episode actually turned out longer than I expected. I feel like there was a lot of background noise in this one. So I apologize for that. My neighbor was mowing his lawn for the third fucking time this week and it's only Tuesday. And I had a stupid fly buzzing around the whole time. I so hope you guys didn't hear that, but it was driving me nuts. But anyways, thank you for joining me again. I hope everybody in the Northern Hemisphere is enjoying their summer. For us here in the U.S., the 4th of July is coming up, our Independence Day. Party it up. Have a good time, and whatever you do, 
Stay keystoned, my friends. Mm -hmm.